You're listening to A Private View with me, Maeve Doyle. On today's show, we're talking about the role of the gallery and the gallerist in the art world. Guests include J.D. Mallet, Mimi Rosenquist, Donald Warhola, and Gavin Turk. We went to some past interviews for this podcast about the gallery and found one with Mimi Rosenquist, who uh, looks after the artist's estate. She was working with Thaddeus Ropek while she was here on an exhibition in 2019. Uh, an artist's estate works closely with a gallery to preserve the artist's work and legacy after their death, and that can include anything from artist letters, papers, drawings, documents, but their job really is to keep exhibiting and lending the artist's work and to keep them relevant in cultural history. Mimi Rosenquist was a special treat because she worked for the legendary dealer Leo Castelli, and that's where she met her husband, James Rosenquist. Have a listen to this. It is gold. It's approximately 60 years ago today that James Rosenquist decided to stop painting billboards and marquees and dedicate himself to a career as a fine artist. And I think his work is more relevant now than ever before. Uh, The mysteries of why that is, I'm hoping to uncover with Mimi Rosenquist today and Sarah Bancroft, who curated the 2003... 2004 retrospective at the Guggenheim called James Rosenquist. Hello, both of you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having us. It's a pleasure. And I'm certain that you're uh, stretched for time and energy, considering your opening is tonight and you've been hanging the show and greeting press all day. It's been busy. How are you, <laughs> how are you feeling? Oh, great, really. Congratulations on the hang. The work looks terrific in Ellie House, that incredible building on Dover Street. How how are you feeling about it? Oh, it's beautiful. Don't you think, Sarah? It's just... um, It's gorgeous. I think the the building married with the artwork is really... We couldn't ask for more. And is it the same show that you had at the Guggenheim? Oh, no. It's very different. A a retrospective at any museum will be very comprehensive, covering work from, you know, Jim's career in the 60s all the way to, at that point, um, 2000, 2003. So as someone who runs the foundation or the estate, tell me exactly what it is that you do. The foundation, the James Rosenquist Foundation, is devoted to promoting research, scholarship, and exhibition of of his career, his work, his oeuvre, if you will. And that's really our calling. And of course, the estate, which is separate from the foundation, has a similar mission and goal. And it does. Um, The foundation also has a, a modest philanthropic uh, part that we're, you know, trying to develop. And the estate and the foundation do work in tandem. And really, um, it's all about making sure Jim's work is seen. And also, the story of his work is known, because he, you know, was very politically active. And really, that hasn't been emphasized in a lot of the exhibitions um, until recently. So, we are trying to talk about that a bit. Now, I talked about that a bit today at the gala, like before I left to come here. And I, what is that about? I mean, looking back at his work and seeing the political and the environmental and the criticism on mass consumerism, um, 
And it almost, that's what I meant when I said it's almost more relevant now than it was. There was a prophetic feel to it. Well, that's, I mean, I think that really sums it up. He seemed to be able to see ahead somehow. And also some of the same problems. And uh, we we were having back in the 60s are, we're having today, only they're amplified. So um, in his work, you see politics. Sometimes it's hard to read it. And, you know, you don't see it right away. And other paintings like F-111, it's very evident, an anti-war painting and... Um, or for a stranger, which is hanging in the gallery. Um, against, it was a protest against the Vietnam War. There's no way for you to be able to answer this question, but I want you to try. Do you think he would have the freedom to speak his mind as openly today as he could at the time he was painting the pieces he was painting? I think so. Um, Sarah, what are your thoughts mm -hmm. on that? I think that's the beauty of all artists is they take the initiative and they open space where there is no space to make comments. And Jim was so great at that. Not only was he a painter's painter, so he appealed on a very formal level to his colleagues and contemporaries and to collectors and curators and whatnot, but he was questioning what was happening. He was very responsive to the times. And that's also why the work is so fresh, because not only was he prescient, he was responsive, but the work continues to deliver formally and conceptually. When I posted, I took a picture of the Rosenquits today with my dog, Stella. <laughs> and within a second, a graduate from the Slade School of Art named Lo Poder said, this is the first piece that I cried in front wow. of. And it was <laughs> oh, mm -hmm. so beautiful. Uh, and I I've known him for a few years. I went to his grad show. I will investigate. I didn't have time, but it moved him to tears. Have you heard that before about pieces of, of Jim's work? Yes. 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 I mean, I think um, Jim puts a lot of emotion into his works. I mean, not only his intellect, but his heart really goes in. And he is um, talking about topics in his work that really affect everybody. And that particular painting, The Light That Won't Fail, is um, really about every person's life in some ways. And the comb he saw as um, kind of bars mm -hmm. and something that is uh, something that is a simple domestic item like a comb. And yet to him, it in this painting, it really symbolized the kind of staticness of um, domestic life sometimes mm -hmm. when you feel trapped in a routine that just continues and continues. Mm -hmm. And it's something that is contrary to the American dream that was kind of promised to everybody in the 1950s. It's like the claustrophobia of our quotidian existence and routines and yes. demands. If you, if you uh, aren't holding this picture in front of you, there's a comb at the, the top to create almost a theatrical curtain coming down over a domestic scene of, of a man sitting in his living room and a woman looking up into the light, it feels like, and this is a retrospective remark, it feels like Madman or a scene from Madman, mm -hmm. which is quite curious because Jim started his career in advertising. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. You're keying into some important points because the image of the woman she's exhaling, it's from a cigarette advertisement. And of course, the man pulling on his socks, that's a sock advertisement. And the comb, of course, is, I think he drew that, but it's a very well-known brand of comb. So he was using goody. very recognizable... Yes, it? exactly. Using these very recognizable images 
to convey completely disparate messages. And, and when you can find meaning in the simple things that are part of everyday life, that's it's it, it's easy to be important if you're finding difficult theat you know theory based academic solutions. He's finding it in dime store products. Uh, that takes me to the relationship with Andy Warhol, to the relationship with Rauschenberg, uh, Jasper Johns. Who worked for Leo Castelli? I did. <laughs> I almost won a second show on that. <laughs> Yes, what there. was that like, and how did that come about? If, if I mean, Leo Castelli revolutionized. He did. He did. Um, well, I was very lucky. I had worked at the Whitney Museum for three and a half years, and then I wanted to work in a gallery downtown, and a friend of mine, David Whitney, said, they're looking for somebody, and you've got to take the job. It's, you know, you'll regret it if you don't. Um, and I said, sure, I'd love it. And... Well, Leo was wonderful because he really felt deeply about his artists and their work, and he was truly um, involved, you know, in, in their intellectual life, in their personal lives. He was really more than just an art dealer. He was a friend and incredibly kind, lovely to all of us who work for him as well. It was a treat to see the passing parade in the Castelli Gallery. <laughs> the passing parade, which includes Rauschenberg, Johns, absolutely, Meredith Monk, absolutely, um, Merce Cunningham. I, I, I think he said he didn't have the energy to take on Basquiat. Is that urban myth or true? Um, it could have been true, because um, uh, Jean Michel came on the scene when it was everything was changing and. Uh, Leo did show David Sally and uh, Julian Schnabel, and I, I, you mentioned Sally, and I've been holding back. <laughs> I know mm -hmm. the, the the comparisons mm -hmm. are undeniable. Can we talk about that later when I let you finish your sentence? Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, um, but it was it was a wonderful time, but it was a very different time, and I think for Leo, his core artist from a certain period were what he felt truly passionate about, and that would be um, Jasper, Jim, Anna Bob, um, Lee Bonteque. Uh, he also loved Marisol, although I don't think he ever showed her. But uh, Bob who? Um, Robert Rauschenberg. Robert right. Rauschenberg, yes, sorry. Uh, you, this is very <laughs> intimate. They were your friends. Yes, yeah. and Bob was a really close friend of Jim's, which um, was wonderful, and they, they really kept that friendship going for... Um, all their lives, and and they it was wonderful to see them together. They loved each other. It was a great friendship. And with this uh, book came out this year called Warhol and Basquiat, and it's about artistic friendships and people who may not seem like appropriate friends, but there's something in in their creative pursuits that makes them more alike than anyone. Exactly. Like, and you're saying that's what Bob and Robert and James had. I think really the artists of that generation seemed to have an immense respect for each other. Bob and Jim respected each other. Andy Warhol and Jim respected each other, although they were really different kinds of people. And uh, there was, and you know, the same with the whole group. And it was a smaller art world, so you really knew 
everybody and you went to all the openings and everyone had studio visits so it was just you could manage that now it's so big and it still happens but not there are many different worlds rather than one Mimi did you go to art school um, no I didn't I didn't how did the art world open itself up to you and um, and how did you meet Jim well um, I met Jim when I worked at Leo Castelli and he came in one day and I'd already been working for Castelli for about a year and he came in and was having lunch with Leo and he said, uh, hello, my name's Jim Rosenquist and and are you free for lunch? Because you should come with us. And of course, Leo said, no, she can't. <laughs> so, but then we later did go out. So it was um, the classic girl behind the gallery desk story. <laughs> but I know something, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. Okay. He wouldn't have been the first artist who asked you out. <laughs> I'm looking at you, and, yeah. and you are absolutely stunning. Oh, and I've worked in galleries, so and artists love flirting. They do. So I'm sure. Why did you say yes to him and not to all the other artists who would have asked you out? Well, you know, I liked him right away. Did and, you? Yes, and he was very persistent also. So, um, uh, So I just... Went for Do you it. know what you liked about him, or was it a chemical thing? I think it was a chemical thing, honestly. He's, um, we both are, have Scandinavian backgrounds, and there was something so familiar to uh, me about him. So I don't know if that was it or this thing called love. We'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, Sarah. Can I talk to you Absolutely. about your background yes. and how you got involved in in this world of? James Rosenquist. Mm -hmm. Did you go to art school? I Do did. You paint? I'm an art historian. I literally finished my graduate degree at the Courtauld and two days later started working on Jim's show in New York at the Guggenheim. They pulled me. Um, what does from it grad mean school. they pulled you? Did they? Well, I had, I had, it's true. I had interned at the Guggenheim and then left and gone, moved to London and gone to grad school. And um, after finishing one of my grad degrees there, you know, I had this opportunity. I was asked by the people I'd interned with if I would accept working on this show, that show, or would I work with Walter Hopps with no, Jim? Please yes. tell yes, people yes. about Walter Hopps oh, and about this. how many yes. glasses he wore at once. <laughs> um, Just for a minute and then get back sure. to it. So Walter, preeminent, amazing American curator who um, was curating, co-curating Jim's show at the time. And so I was pulled into this project. I had interned with him on the Rauschenberg show. So that's also why they thought I might be able to work with him. And it proved to be true. We actually, we were kind of an odd triplet, Jim. You're very polite Walter. because you're looking at me. But every <laughs> time you do, this. we can't hear you. <laughs> oh, I'm Keep, so sorry. That's why I we wear were, these because yes, I move around too much. We were something of an odd triplet with like, you know, these old established art world dudes and this younger woman. But I think we worked quite well together. And Walter and I became very, very close. And he really uh, helped establish my career. But more importantly, having worked on Jim's show for five years from start to finish, from the moment I started it to the moment it closed, essentially, you know, you're either going to love or hate the art and or the artist. And I only grew to love the work. And Jim, as a friend and an artist and just an incredible human, more and more. And that relationship continued. And essentially, he eventually asked me to be the head of his foundation. So you're analytical. I've spotted that. You probably know exactly why you grew to love him. What were the principal key mm -hmm. qualities of Rosenquist that made you love him? 
His, I'm going to talk about his artwork. I think that's what you're asking. Yeah. His artwork is distinct from the other pop artists because it's not as immediately direct or graphic, not like Warhol or Lichtenstein, which is very graphic. And there's something very sophisticated and subtle about it. The mystery pulls you in. The paintings seep out slowly over time. They're very esoteric and evocative. They're emotional and rigorous. And if you can live with a painting and work with a painting and install a painting over five years and still love it and grow to see something new every time you're hanging it, that's a powerful painting. I like that answer. Uh, do you think James Rosenquist has enjoyed the same fame and recognition and legacy as Andy Warhol, as uh, Jasper Johns, as Robert Rauschenberg, um, uh, Certainly their careers started in the same place. They were on the same level. They were promoted to the same degree. I think because Jim's work is a little more esoteric, he, he had and has a different trajectory. But what we're seeing is, in a way, just as Rauschenberg's career was recuperated later in his life, the same has happened and continues to happen for Jim. This beautiful, gorgeous retrospective that happened in Europe just a couple of years ago at Museum Ludwig and at Aarhus, or in Aarhus at Aros Museum did so much for Jim's career. But of course, in Europe, and particularly on the continent, he's so widely respected. He's, his, the holdings at Moderna Museet, at Museum Ludwig are quite rich, or you know, really important, iconic paintings at the um, Centre Georges Pompidou. So I think in terms of the museum and curator world, he is seen you know, part and parcel with his contemporaries. He doesn't necessarily have the same name recognition amongst people walking down the street, but I think that's starting to change. I'd like to ask why the title of this show is Visualizing the 60s. Well, um, Visualizing the 60s, I think we were trying to really show Jim as an experimenter and show him working in the 60s and doing a lot of new things. It was a decade where he tried, you know, he worked with three-dimensional objects, he painted on mylar, he made um, immersive room art, and he tried a lot of different things that he hadn't been doing before. So it was a reflection of the time he was working, most definitely. So I think that's why we chose Visualizing the 60s, because it, it really reflects the creativity and experimentation of the time. And that experimentation and time has similarities to now. I'm trying to think what we haven't touched on. I'm so excited about seeing the show. And I guess, uh, Sarah, I'll start with you, because I see that there's clearly I mean David Sally must have been affected by this work and so would have Eric Fischel and the 80s artists do you want to expand on that I can a bit I think it's you're stating the obvious that painters not only were in the 70s and 80s and 90s and to the present day looking at his work he's such an important painter but also his skill as a billboard painter and then moving into um, his own fine art career was, his facility was so incredible that he absolutely influenced, you know, David and Fischl and, and so many artists. And Mimi, you might have more firsthand experience with some of this, you know, having worked in the gallery. 
Um, so I'm really curious to hear what Mimi has to say about some of those 80s relationships. I'm so curious to hear about what Mimi says <laughs> about so many things, because as an artist's wife, you seem happy. And, <laughs> and, and, the, and the kind of stereotype is that they're tortured and they're amused and they're sort of used to inspire. What was it like being the partner to someone so dynamic and involved in the not only were you working at Castelli and seeing everything that sort of formed the art scene in the 80s, internationally, I would dare to say, uh, but you were married to one of the leading artists at the time. Well, you know, it's funny. In the beginning, when you go into a relationship, you don't think about those things. You just kind of think about the human connection. But I, I have to say that um, Jim was amazing from the get-go. He had an immense amount of energy and more energy than you can imagine and really never still always working and his happiest place um was in the studio absolutely he just loved working but i completely got that i really understood that and what would might have been a problem for other people i knew you know he had to really just turn off his normal life really and go into the studio and and think and work and and that's you know that would be his first thing always and it, but that, that does, that's a struggle for some partners to know that yeah. the first relationship for an artist is with the creative process yes, but i i really understood that so and i don't really know why it you know i i got it and um i write about art so i was busy with my projects too but it's a different thing to and he was wired differently he had a completely unique outlook and he also was always looking for strangeness and mystery and trying to explore things that no one had explored before and he in his paintings he really loved to end up with a mystery he didn't want any questions answered he just wanted each painting to continue his exploration and it was really inspiring honestly to see him create these things because it all came out of his mind it's so authentic really doing something that no one else was doing. It's completely his vision all the way and very personal. A lot of his personal feelings, a lot of his personal life, are you know, there. that's in the painting. Politics, that's in the painting. Um, uh, critiques of the military-industrial complex, that's in the painting. I mean, it's full of just so much. It's full of each decade that he works, he kind of represents it and looks a little bit ahead. So he was just a little ahead of the game in his, he sensed what was going to happen in a way. Like and he did paintings about the environment being in trouble, you know, early on. And he always really um, seemed to know what we were doing wrong and what we were doing right. It was a strange, he had a, just an uncanny way of perceiving things that were a little bit in the future. If he was here today in 2019, what would he be focused on? And I know it's hypothetical. Well, I think he would be making some very political paintings and it's such a politically charged time. It's such a difficult and dangerous time uh, for all our governmental structures and our environment and Oh, he'd have plenty to say. <laughs> I'm sure of that. I don't, you know, I think he'd be focusing on all of it, really. You know, he'd 
didn't like to leave anything out. <laughs> Sarah, what I do you agree. do? You? Oh, absolutely. Jim often said the hardest thing to find or to have is an idea for an artist. The hardest thing to have is an idea. And for him, the ideas were all around him. And once he had one, you know, he would call me up when he was working on a new series and kind of keep me informed. But he wouldn't always tell me exactly what the series was going to look like. It was this idea he had that was fomenting and festering. And I think very much this moment we're in right now, internationally, this kind of insanity would have fueled him to respond in an incredibly unexpected way because he always responded, but it, he came in sideways to reveal something in an unexpected way. It was always... Um, approachable. I mean, that's the beauty of an artist. If they're going to critique something, to do it in a way where you, you can swallow it without feeling like you're choking, without even knowing that it's something that maybe you don't want to swallow that pill. He was so good at that. The insanity of the prices in the art market at the moment have brought a lot of people into the art world that probably weren't in the art world when you were working at Leo Castelli, and yeah. they even they weren't in the art world when I started. Uh, new people are kind of muscling their way in, and new markets are opening up. And as a result of that, there's an in, I, I'm going to be so bold and say there's an insanity around the pricing. I think Gerhard Richter had said this is more than a house. You know, yes. there's a lot of um, mad money, mega dealers, and the whole boom thing. That book that came out by Michael Schneerson earlier this year. What do you think? Jim would say about auction prices and and freeholds and uh, collectors who are collecting as investments and transparency versus opaque and there's a lot in that as well. Well, there is, and the art market is you know such a crazy mystery, really. It's and why you know some paintings go for just an insane amount of money and others don't, and it's you know. There's all kinds of reasons that happens. However, I think um, I think for Jim, he wasn't really so focused on the art market or the auction prices. I mean, if someone he sold most of his paintings when he when he made them, he was lucky to sell them when he made them. So, but to see a painting he made in the '60s go for a whole lot of money later, um, he. You know, he would just kind of shrug, although he and uh, Robert Rauschenberg did work on getting, um, what was that called? Art, their artist rights. Yes, the artist rights. Um, I can't remember that. Oh, yeah, no, I know like what you're that. talking about. Through yes. the auction house where they get a percentage. Yes. Yeah, I think. And so that was something. That's great. That's because still artists aren't getting that. So that was right. early influence. Legislation sure. in the seventies they were pushing right. for, and exactly. I don't think it succeeded. But they worked really hard to try to push through. And the artist that's rights. amazing. Mm -hmm. And the impetus for that push was they saw so many artists that had success early on, and then suddenly the early paintings were going for a lot of money, and these artists had not continued to be successful. So. I thought it was great that Bob and Jim really teamed up and went to the Senate and lobbied for artist rights. So I think it's great, too. Yeah, unfortunately, it hasn't happened, but <laughs> we'll see. There's always the future, I guess. Let's talk about philanthropy. What does mm -hmm. the foundation do for young and emerging artists? Well, do you want to talk about sure. this? Sure. So the foundation at present 
is not fully operational. We do operate, but that's a legal status. Um, but essentially, Jim defined very clearly for us that he wanted to support young and emerging artists and artist materials. And I think that's an initiative we hold very dear and close to our hearts. He also was really involved in um, children's health initiatives as well. So those are the missions we will carry forward on Jim's behalf. Will you be at Taddeus Ropek this evening? Absolutely. Oh, yes. <laughs> we will. Pleasure. Can people just walk up to you and ask you questions about everything there? Oh, absolutely. I know they can. I yes. saw you both in action this morning. Um, any last words before I let you continue with what's going to be a busy day? Well, we're thrilled to be in London, aren't we? And absolutely the, thrilled. The show looks beautiful. I hope everyone comes to see it. It's um, amazing. And thank you for having us It's on. an honor and a pleasure. And if you're back in London, please come again, both of thank you. Thank you. Here's J.D. Mallet. Uh, he has J.D. Mallet Gallery in Mayfair and invests a lot of effort into building artists' brands at all stages of their career. Uh, passionate, welcoming man of the art world. Have a listen. Hi. Uh, I'm JD, JD Malat. So uh, we opened the gallery in 2018 in Mayfair. We're on Davis Street, uh, next to the Claridge's and uh, and uh, Berkeley Square. Um, I come uh, with uh, with this idea of isolation master uh, during um, during the isolation time. I was uh, I was thinking what 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 I can do to uh, help the art community and uh, what what could be helpful for some artists. And it, actually, this time uh, was a good time for for me and for us to think about uh, uh, different things to do, uh, to try to uh, get busy in the head and uh, and uh, um, and be helpful for uh, for for others. So uh, we come we came with the with the idea of isolation mastered, uh, and it was uh, we we went we went very quick on that because I think we we start thinking about about this idea beginning of May and then from from the 15th of May we start the selection. So yes, this is this is this is the egg piece is uh, is uh, is. <laughs> Is uh, is very very strong, very very nice. I think this piece was uh, one of the most successful pieces from our committee uh, because all the committee went through a, a selection, and I think we had like. Tell everyone what we're looking at. Yeah, we're looking at some eggs now uh, in the kitchen. So it's like uh, a, photograph? F- a photograph of five large eggs in a in a in a kitchen. Uh, very interesting. I think this picture makes you think. Um, it's just like you want to know what's going on. You know why the size has this size. Uh, the colors are beautiful. I think it's a very strong photograph. Yeah. So now we look. Everything is for sale. Yes, almost everything is for sale. Some of the artists they, they prefer not to sell their work, so there is maybe two or three pieces not for sale. Uh, this piece is beautiful. So it's a by a, it's an hyper-realistic paintings uh, of a, a nurse or, or or someone with a mask or maybe the the the, the eyes uh, the 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 water in the eyes and the, it's so beautiful. You know, it makes you think. It makes you I don't know. It's so powerful. It's a beautiful piece. The, the light in the eyes, and so this this is a great piece. Yeah. So here we have an interesting sculpture done by Mohamed Mohamed. So Mohamed Mohamed is an artist that uh, so we discovered through uh, Isolation Mastered. It's been done with six thousand uh, 
uh, newspaper and it took him 350 hours to do this piece during the isolation time. <laughs> 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 the isolation time. So this is, a ma this, is a master, this is a masterpiece and this piece is a, is a portrait of uh, Boris Johnson. Yeah, it's a Boris Johnson piece, you know. It's it's unbelievable, yeah. So you have to see that, you know. How long is the show open? So the show is until the eighth uh, of July. So I wish a lot of people can come. We're very careful with all the uh, all the things regarding the, the the coronavirus. Yes. So it's uh, it's gonna, it's going to be open until the eighth, and uh, you can vote online also uh, on my website jtmala.com. Yes, the, the, you can vote online for the artists that you prefer, and the winner will have a solo show next year in the gallery. 2021 solo show. <laughs> I love the way you take care of your artists. And if you haven't been to J.D. Mallet Gallery on Davy Street, you have to come along. It's always welcoming and open and a beautiful space to recharge your batteries or look at art that perhaps you haven't seen before. J.D. Mallet is experienced. He's been in the art world for years. Everyone speaks very highly of him. And uh, always remember, these spaces are open free to the public. This is museum-quality work, and you are allowed, because you're a Londoner, to come and enjoy, experience, and look at this great art. Thank you to people like J.D. Mallet for dedicating his life to showing the work of artists. This is from last year. It's a chat with Donald Warhol about the Andy Warhol Museum in Pennsylvania and Warhol's contribution to cultural history. Uh, Donald tells a story about installing computers in the factory in New York as one of his first jobs. He definitely keeps the legend, the history, the story, the archives, and everything about his uncle's work alive and culturally relevant. Hi, Donald, and welcome. Welcome. Tell us a little bit about what's going on at the South Bank, and then we'll get into deep other stuff, too. Sure, sure. So... Um it's great to be in London. It's great to have you here. It, it, it's really nice. We're here. I'm here uh, to help launch uh, the Pittsburgh Art on the Bank exhibition, which is happening um, over on, again, on the bank. It's a multidisciplinary art exhibition, open 24 hours. Actually, I went back last evening uh, to check out the art again. So it's, Is it it's, like the skateboard park and the Hayward and correct. outside the South Bank and the Festival Hall? And correct. I it's used right to work at the area. Hayward. How can okay. you tell? Right, right. <laughs> That's amazing. Are they doing projections? I'm, I don't believe Doesn't, they are right now. I know they have a, an installation set up, an outdoor installation. How did this come about, this sort of partnership with Pittsburgh and London? So it was an opportunity to really, you know, connect with the art of Pittsburgh and to show others that uh, London, actually, that there's a lot of great artists. Obviously, we all know of Andy Warhol, but there's a lot of great art and artists in Pittsburgh. And with the opportunity to get to Pittsburgh quite quickly with the British Airways one-way flight, uh, it's, you know, it's a really great, again, opportunity to explore Pittsburgh's cultural center. And again, a lot of times Pittsburgh is known more for its steel industry, or used to be at least, but some still have that impression. 
Pittsburgh is just this smoky steel town, which it was. Actually, it was when my uncle Andy Warhol grew up in Pittsburgh. But it's really, it's really evolved since then. Technology is really big. The arts, the arts actually have always been really big in Pittsburgh. We have a fellow, you know, a UK person, Andrew Carnegie, who really established the arts in Pittsburgh, and others followed his lead. So it, what did he do? What was his? I mean, Andy, I know Andrew Carnegie, but if you just want to in a quick, how did he establish it? What happened? How did this come about? Sure, sure. Because a steel town, my parents were immigrants and our equivalent in Canada, Irish immigrants to Canada was Hamilton. Oh, right. And of course, I had relatives in Cleveland, which is another working class city like a Pittsburgh. And a lot of great artists come from there as well. And I think Mel Bogner comes from Pittsburgh. Hmm. Perhaps. Anyway, I'm not do you live there familiar. now? Yes, I do. I actually live a little bit north of Pittsburgh. But so our, uh, Andrew Carnegie worked the steel industry, created the steel industry, ran the steel industry in Pittsburgh. And as you mentioned, a lot of the Eastern European immigrants and other immigrants came over uh, before the turn of the century and after um, in the early 1900s to work in the steel industry. And after Andrew Carnegie made his millions uh, on in the steel industry, he did give back to the community through the library system, uh, through and and again the Carnegie, which is part, which is actually runs the Warhol Museum, the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, is part of uh, what Andrew Carnegie created in Pittsburgh to promote culture. This great the sense city. of philanthropy, and that Absolutely. is the American dream at its very best. Right. It really is. It's giving back. And actually, it, it's interesting because the other Andy, famous Andy from Pittsburgh, my uncle, did the same. He created, after his death, he created the Andy Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts, which is up in New York. And it's just, you know, has given so much back to the visual arts uh, around the country and in America. So that's like, you know, again, just really huge. And uh, that's another part of my uncle's legacy that a lot of people are not aware of. Uh, but again, it's a, it's a big part of my uncle's legacy as well. That he gives back to the community. So there's a few things I want to say about that. There probably isn't a day in my life since I first started art school that I haven't thought about your uncle. Wow. Uh, I think That's there's this definite art conversation, awareness, raising peace, that we do know that we're now living in a world that he imagined all those years ago. There's Correct. other things that as we evolve as a society, and I get very emotional when I talk about it your uncle Andy Warhol would have been very bold and brave about it, it wasn't easy to be openly gay in Pittsburgh right it wasn't easy to be openly gay in New York right even his contemporaries Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper John were presenting as straight men I mean they were gay and they did finally talk about it but Andy was flamboyantly gay right and it that couldn't have been an easy call he was also a Catholic so the conflicts were right fantastic exactly and and it's interesting how he was able to navigate that and again like you said his contemporaries who were also gay they actually would you know criticize my uncle for being too gay and them themselves not feeling comfortable enough to be open and, of course, and it might have hurt their career they also worried like they worried just like lee krasner degendering her name from Layla to Lee, right. they would think it's going to hurt my career if I'm openly gay. I have to at least present it straight. Andy didn't just, all of that was no. 
Right. Yeah, no, he stood true to himself. And that's the way I knew my uncle, too. You, you know, it's more or less, this is who I am. That was my next me question. or not. Yeah. So you actually knew him? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I started to visit in New York in when I was born in 1963. So my father's John Warhola. He was the middle brother. There was three sons, and Andy was the youngest, Uncle Andy. And my father was in the middle, and then my Uncle Paul was the oldest. And there was three years that separated each of the boys. And we would go up. Um, my grandmother moved up to New York in the early 50s. I want to talk more about her. Oh, yeah. she, she's, a, she's a story in herself. She was just so loving, caring, and supportive. And she actually introduced my uncle to art. She loved art. She loved to draw. We have at the Andy Warhol Museum art that Jolia created, drawings that inspired my uncle, especially during his commercial art days in the 1950s. The shoes. Yes, the shoes. Well, Jolia's favorite, my grandmother's favorite art were the cats and angels. So she really enjoyed drawing cats and angels for some reason. Uh, I think for the religious reasons, the angels, because the whole family was very religious. And my uncle remained religious throughout his life. And that conflict is about being gay and being Catholic, which I think some people suggest his celibacy was about being Catholic. Mm -hmm. And of course, you can't have sex as a gay person if you're Catholic. Catholic, correct, correct. So these, these tensions, these brilliant tensions, like being who you are and yet having a faith... It, this created this pressure that made such interesting art. And I wonder if that was his only form of expression because everything else was structured in such a way that he wasn't allowed to express it. Right. Well, I, I just believe, as I knew my uncle, because, again, I, I started to visit when I was a baby. And um, I, I was 24 when my uncle passed away. I worked for him right before he passed away. Which is a neat story, if you want to hear it. I do. Okay. I'm a- so I had graduated college, and I'd gone up to visit my uncle uh, in, in August of 1986. And we were walking through his factory at the time, and I noticed that his staff was not computerized. Uh, they did not have any types of personal computers. And people were just getting into... they didn't. Yeah, right. I'm just trying to imagine them. They probably didn't have keys for a house. right. Right, I love that. Right. And and again, but I was, you know, I was bold enough and, and Uncle Andy liked to be kind of, you know, challenged. So I said, gee, Uncle Andy, why, why aren't your staff computerized? You're Andy Warhol. You should really, you know, you should be on the leading edge. And I said, I'd be happy to come up and install computers for you, which I did. So he said, yeah, well, you know, we're looking for someone to do that. And it's an entry level position. So, you know, you're going to start kind of at the bottom and work your way up. Which, again, he wanted to make it real. You know, I'm not going to create this illusion where you're going to work for your uncle and, you know, be some manager or director. And then if something happens, you go out in the real world and figure out that it doesn't work that way. He truly loved you. He wanted you to be prepared and have skills. Absolutely. I understood. It was a learning experience. So I did work for my uncle from August to right before Thanksgiving in November. And the plan was for me to come back up the beginning of the year after the holidays and work on a more permanent basis. I installed that. That was kind of a project of installing the computers. And um, unfortunately, he did pass away. So that never happened. Oh, it was so devastating. I think everyone remembers where they were. I certainly do. 
Correct. I mean, it was for our family. Obviously, it was a huge shock because Uncle Andy was so healthy and so fit and so energetic. And he'd survived the shooting. Right. And I, you know, again, getting to work for him, that latter part of 1986, I really got to know him even more and better. And, you know, again, I, I knew, you know, how Uncle Andy would, you know, he ate healthy, he took care of himself, he exercised, but I got to really see him in action doing that. Did he really? Because, I mean, the story is always barbiturates and starvation. Oh, no. And Okay, well, that's no. just a persona. I believe, again, I was not there, but knowing my uncle, what I believe is that, you know, sure, if someone said, hey, Andy, you could stay up all night if you take this pill and he felt it was safe enough but it would keep him working all night, he would do it. But as far as, you know, recreational drugs, I, I can't see it. You know, I, did it not happen? I don't know. But again, it just doesn't fit sort of the profile of my uncle as I knew him. He was so young when he died as well. He was yeah, 58. 58 years old. So that was very, very sad. And again, the tragedy was that he was so healthy and energetic. I mean, when I worked up there, he would go out um, flea market to flea markets in the morning, antiquing uh, with a friend or two, and then maybe roll into work around lunchtime and work into the evening. And if there's an event, which he consider work as well, he would go out to, to you know attend that. So it made for a long day. And, and he would do this, you know, five, six days a week. And I'm probably am guessing that the the uh, Pittsburgh Foundation gave him that work ethic, a very blue collar work ethic, ethic, and an immigrant's work ethic, where you are going to build your dreams. You've left everything. I'm saying this from my own personal experience mm -hmm. with my parents, who were immigrants. Work was everything to them. They wanted that was why they were there. So Correct. everything was work, and you were building a better future. And I'm guessing he was infused with the same values and principles. Totally. I, I agree, Maeve. I think that was, you know, because, again, it was the steel time, blue collar. Steel mills never close, right? They're open every day, all, you know, all day long, 24 hours, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year. So, And he was Im Im immersed in that where he lived and where he grew up. His neighborhood, childhood neighborhood was right in that whole steel mill area because that's where the immigrants lived. I'm guessing it influenced his art on so many levels. I believe so. And I believe just those challenges that he faced as a child, being poor, working very hard. Uh, he had a childhood illness that he dealt with. His father passed away when he was 13 years old. So I always tell people, you know, my impression, my opinion is that that all built such resiliency in my uncle that allowed him to take on the art world. To say, hey, you know what, I'm going to change how we perceive art, how we see art, what we consider to be art, subject matter. And he knew he was going to face a lot of rejection, a lot of criticism for that. Um, but there well. was no fear left. and He'd right. faced everything exactly. at a young age. Exactly. Uh, that's exactly what I believe. And again, with his sexuality as well. You know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to promote individuality when it comes to sexuality and not, you know, conform. And he did that through his art. He used his art to take on a lot of causes. And that was early on. And again, it was very brave oh my gosh. of him to do that. Transgendered everything. I mean, right. this is early that, influence. I mean, we're barely catching up to where he was at 
right. 40 years ago. And that's what I love about my uncle. Again, I, I believe it I believe it was rooted, you know, ironically in his religious beliefs that everyone is special, everyone is unique. And that's how I believe he really reconciled his sexuality that, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. And there was a reason why I'm who I am. And that's not a bad, you know, God doesn't create bad people. I believe it was was how he felt. So, you know, and again, I never had a conversation with my uncle, but, you know, I think he probably didn't believe all of Catholicism and, you know, that part of it specifically. But he had faith. Absolutely. And respect for faith. Absolutely. You know, Maeve, even in 1986, just again, just prior to my uncle's death, when I worked up there, if I would call... I would usually either visit Uncle Andy on the weekend or check in with him, give him a phone call. And he, because he was very protective, you know, again, it was not like, oh, go out and have a good time and, and come back, uh, you know, let me know what parties you went to. It was he the felt opposite. responsible for it. Absolutely. You. He, yeah, he did want, want to make that phone call to my father that, hey, we lost Donald um, to the wild life of New York City. So his big brother, John, would. <laughs> It, yeah, he didn't want to disappoint right? him. It That's beautiful. I believe so, yeah. Didn't want to disappoint him. But so Uncle Andy would ask me, you know, where did you go this weekend? Who did you go with? What did you do? And it's Sunday. Did you go to church? So again, who would think, um, you know, that my uncle, that that was the Andy Warhol? But again, that was Uncle Andy as I knew him. And I tell a lot of people that, you know, I, I believe that you know, he understood or at least believed that, hey, if this is the persona that I'm projecting, then it's going to be kind of boring and I need to be more edgy. So then he creates, in my opinion, this Andy Warhol persona, which is the wild, eccentric, um, flamboyant artist. So, you know, there's again, there's a, you know, there's a, a give and take there as far as the true Andy Warhol. I'm going to take a breath, but I'm. And, and I'm going to play David Bowie, but did you hear the story about David Bowie meeting Andy Warhol? Yeah, actually, at the Warhol Museum, that's one of, uh, you know, again, one of the attractions or one of the reasons to visit the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh. We have all the films, and there was a series of, Uncle Andy was always up on technology, so whenever he was able to do filming and um, capture who was coming into the factory, he would do that. And we have films that, that go on that show da- a young, young David Bowie visiting the factory. Yes, long hair, and and it's great. We have just a separate gallery where you could go in and you could bring up any film. It's a touch um, screen. I can't wait. Any film, any of the television programs that my it's uncle a five did. five-hour flight? That's all. Five-hour flight Straight from flight. Heathrow? Yes. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you have my card now. You know oh, I'm... yeah, absolutely. And I'll give you the nephew tour. So, Maeve, that'll be a little I- icing on the cake, right? <laughs> but again, the, the museum is so well laid out that it just totally, uh, it's laid out chronologically. So it's very easy to peruse through. Uh, you start with the early childhood, actually, and the family information and photos about Andy Warhol. You get into his commercial career as an artist and then the early pop works and then through the 60s, the 70s and 80s. And then we have a floor dedicated to the archival materials because Uncle Andy was an avid collector. You know, we talked about him antiquing, but also he would just create these time capsules where we could go back now and literally see, you know, what was Warhol doing, say, in 1975 
by opening a, this time capsule that captures that period, you could see through correspondence, ticket stops, whatever he felt was pertinent, he would put in a time capsule. But I know you need a break. So. No, I just <laughs> thought that I there was a Michael Jackson exhibition here last year at the National Portrait Gallery, and I mm. believe... Nicholas Cullen, the curator and director of the National Portrait Gallery, had an Andy Warhol Michael Jackson time capsule of a glove at one right. of his parties. Is Absolutely. that possible? Yes. Actually, the way I understand it is that Michael Jackson used that as an invite. So that was the invite to the party that he sent out. So, And again, you'll find a lot of that. Uh, it's great when we have performers come through town, especially those who knew Uncle Andy. Because we'll bring them into the archive area, and or we'll you know prepare for their visit and show them some of the archival materials that related um, to them. We had the Red Hot Chili Peppers come through Pittsburgh not long ago, and Flea and Josh, their guitarists, came through. Wonderful guys, they were just so nice. And Flea told me some stories about him and um, you know v- visiting Uncle Andy and having tea. Uh, with Anthony and and himself and and visiting Uncle Andy and Uncle Andy's just you know being motivational and saying you know just keep working and, you know everything will go well it'll turn out just work hard and you know Pittsburgh. and they were very young at that point but still and and he remembered so we were able to bring out some materials some invites that they sent Uncle Andy to their performances so it was great it's always great to connect those dots and again just another aspect of the Warhol Museum and its, you know, fabulous collection. I'm going to explode. <laughs> I'm here with Donald Warhol, and he has uh, an Andy Warhol exhibition at the South Bank Center. It's around the Oxo Tower, and it's on until Sunday, and it's promoting emerging artists from Pittsburgh. What's incredible about this is it's really in the spirit of shepherding in and mentoring that Andy Warhol was known for. It wasn't interesting for him to be successful in a vacuum. He wanted to bring everyone alongside with him. And there's wonderful stories about Jean-Michel Basquiat crumbling when Andy died because he believed that Andy was his only true friend who would help him evolve as a person. And it was shortly after Andy died that Basquiat went into a drug decline and eventually himself passed away. Right. Um, now, I don't want to focus as much on that. I would like to talk about the foundation because the foundation is incredible and has helped keep the spirit of Andy alive and bring forward a lot of other artist donald can you tell me something about it sure actually there's a there's a tie-in there because the andy warhol foundation will be publishing a book on basquiat and the relationship between warhol my uncle and jean-michel basquiat and it's going to just have all these lovely photographs that really um and that tie back also the book will tie back to the diary entries that my uncle had and it really explores that relationship between basquiat and um, my uncle. Did Andy you meet Warhol. Basket? I Basket. did not. No. It was interesting. Uncle Andy would would really compartmentalize, you know, his Andy Warhol side and the Uncle Andy side. So I think Basket. I think Basket was difficult, and he probably wouldn't have wanted to introduce a young man to. I'm guessing perhaps, he was protecting you. Who perhaps, knows? Right. That could be a reason. I think Uncle Andy. Again, my impression may was that he was taking it very slowly. And again, I was there for four months, so it, it was interesting. When I did go back to Pittsburgh, and I told Uncle Andy I'll come back up at the beginning of the year, and 
every Sunday, Dad would, my father would call Uncle Andy. They would talk every Sunday. That was the ritual. And for that period, when I went back to Pittsburgh, Uncle Andy would question my father. Do you think Donald's coming back? Maybe I didn't pay him enough. You know, next week it would be, you know, maybe I didn't take him out enough. Maybe I should have taken him more oh places. God, I love that he needed reassurance. Right, exactly. That sensitivity is beautiful. It? it just shows, you know, the real kindness. The kindness. But, so, yeah, um, but getting back to the foundation, I just, I wanted to mention, because, again, I, I think this part of my uncle's legacy doesn't get it. Uh, enough attention and it's just amazing since the, the the beginning of the foundation they've given away close to 89 million dollars worth of artwork in different forms yeah those are paintings prints drawings photography uh and it because they're they're not only are they a grant giving institution but they're also again they 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 cultivate visual arts through the collections of Andy Warhol as well. So that kind of that breaks down over 52,000 works to over 300 art museums throughout the world. So you know that is is just astonishing what they what they have done. One and, man's and, life. Exactly. One man's life. And through, you know, through my uncle's, you know, idea they're able to accomplish all this. So in addition to grant giving every year where they support so many art organizations and they really like to focus on those art organizations across America that the funding isn't necessarily available. You know, there's obviously the big LA markets and the New York and Chicago and they'll support them as well, but also for the small areas to smaller states um, where it can make a difference to a dyslexic absolutely. kid or someone absolutely. on the margins to have an art program right and and to the edgy art too that that you know so an artist or an art institution may not find it really readily available or the the funding so much because of the content and you know they're very much the warhol foundation is very much against censorship and they want to support all art and allow all of it to evolve. Because again, remembering that Andy Warhol was very controversial as well. and if, Still if, is. Yes, in many ways. Still is. But back to this weekend, sure. because I'm, I'm hoping to get to the Q&A tomorrow with Carrie Scott. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what's going on about that, that talk and about Andy and creativity in Pittsburgh and what we're hoping to sort of discuss in that Q&A? Any topic you know, relating to my uncle. Yeah. So anything that comes up and, you know, bringing it back to, to Pittsburgh and his Pittsburgh roots, as we started, you know, talking here, how that influenced um, Andy Warhol. And, you know, again, I, I like to, to really talk to people about the, the human, the person behind the artist. And, and that person had the values of someone from Pittsburgh, absolutely. strong work ethic Pictures for every man, not for the elite. Right. Uh, faith in God. Mm-hmm. Um, freedom for everyone. Right. Oh, oh, yeah. Everyone should have a voice. Everyone should have a place at the table, I believe, is what my uncle believed. And again, when he saw someone that was not, and I believe you referred to it earlier, the ladies and gentlemen paintings. These were drag queens that he was commissioned to paint in the early 70s. And the person who commissioned my uncle to do these works actually wanted them to kind of mock them and kind of make fun of them, in my opinion. And Uncle Andy wouldn't do that. Actually, he gave them the same 
um, techniques and, and care and, and preciseness that he did with all the icons and celebrities that he did their portraits as well. So to me... I can you know, see that as a religious tenant. Absolutely. Treating everyone as an equal. And right. that's Everyone is gifted. Every you know again, God doesn't make mistakes, and uh, and I I believe again that Uncle Andy really you know wanted to create a dialogue that hey maybe society tells you that these people are strange or you know they're kind of marginalized individuals according to society's definition, but this is how I see them, and now how do you see them? So again, that was Uncle Andy. Through I, and through the spiritual aspect of it, absolutely, and just the kindness. But re- remember as well that growing up, he was a very thin, you know, frail kid who was picked on, rosacea, right? Uh, dealt skin with his problems. own medical issues, and so he knew how it felt to be sort of the outsider or the other. So I believe that all throughout his life, he made it his mission through his art to champion those others out there, those others that felt kind of excluded and really wanted to give them a voice. Can I do a Q&A with you? Absolutely. I love questions. <laughs> do you make art? I do not, actually. I wish. Um, I, As I tell people, I can't draw a straight line. Do you collect art? I, I enjoy art. We Yes, I do. I do collect some art, and I, I really enjoy seeing art and you know the different understanding the different art movements i just think it's just amazing and and again you could look at andy warhol as one example because again all this we're talking about his art he was also like a historian recording what was happening in our society at that period you know we all know that warhol really made statements on consumerism you know and as part of his pop art which i think really actually made him very attractive to the the london art movement because you know the london pop art movement was preceded the american pop. oh my art god movement. yeah richard hamilton was nothing Absolutely. i mean he was great but he was nothing compared to andy warhol but still fantastic I, I believe, and really complicated right but that instant hit it's not as easy here or well, doesn't look as easy right and and i think that's what you know again you know people from london were looking and, and seeing andy warhol so you know, consumerism, for example, may have been, you know, interpreted from artists from here. But then when you see someone from America, i.e. Andy Warhol, making statements on consumerism, who's right there in the midst of it, you're, you're paying a particular different type of attention to it. Do you have an Andy Warhol? Actually, yes. I, uh, my uncle was very gracious. Uh, when I was a senior in high school, I thought, gee, Uncle Andy's an artist and I should probably get my portrait done because I don't know when I'll ever have the opportunity to have my portrait painted by a real artist. And I'm about to explode <laughs> again. Right. So I asked Uncle Andy, and of course he was very gracious and said, yeah, of course. So I sent him my yearbook photo, and he made a, two beautiful portraits. Very much actually when, when you had mentioned that um, photo booth strip. The so, Holly Solomon one from Marlborough Gallery. Right, if anyone right. wants to see it, it's on right now, her collection. Okay. Yeah. But that uh, that was a technique that early on Uncle Andy would use to do portraits. Go on. And he was influenced, actually, my father, back in the 1940s, had a photo booth machine. And so he would put it, like, in an arcade and then make money off of it. And I have this just beautiful strip of um, shots of my uncle when he was in college. And you could see that he's just, like, 
kind of looking around and each shot shows him with a different perspective and and i could see the wheels turning like wow i could really use this in my arts and how can i use this because again he loved technology he loved to embrace technology and further it in any way that he could through or further his art i should say galleries can be great places to meet artists uh, there's a story about peggy guggenheim having Max Ernst, Alexander Calder, Man Ray, Marcel Duchamp, Marc Chagall, all hanging around her gallery when she opened it in the 1940s, Art of the Century. Uh, when I was at J.D. Mallet's gallery, I ran into the YBA, Gavin Turk. Here he is talking about the show that he sat on the board for, just out of lockdown. It's called Isolation Mastered. I'm here at J.D. Mallet with Gavin Turk. I'm incredibly excited to speak to him. I've watched his career and watched him talk for years, uh, starting with the Elvis, based on the Warhol, the Blue Plaques, the Egg last year, and one I've heard about but haven't seen, which is Sheikh Rivera. So I'll hand the mic to Gavin now, and uh, hopefully he'll talk us through isolation mastered and how the COVID lockdown's been for you. So this is Gavin Turk now taking us around. I am Gavin Turk taking us around a brand new exhibition in Mayfair, London called Isolation Mastered. And I was fortunate enough to be invited to be one of the selectors of the exhibition and we were shown a huge selection of photographs of art online and um, I was very concerned about the whole idea of art and the way that art in this lockdown period was all disappearing online. So again, this is a reiteration of art online. And I was really missing the idea of the physical. And I think this, this exhibition is a response to the fact that artists are making physical things and those physical things need to get out there. They need to get shown. And so I've literally 10 minutes ago entered the exhibition for the first time, the real exhibition. And so this is the first time I'm actually seeing the work in the flesh. And um, and I'm I'm really uh, I'm really excited about seeing the work, and I'm really interested in the way that it's changed. The 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 scale has changed, the colours have changed, the the feeling sensitivity, the the textures, uh, 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 in a way, like the narratives and the storytelling of the work has changed through moving from the virtual to the physical. When we actually look at the physical work and we, we stand and we look at the actual physical work, it suddenly looks like something else. It's showing us something else. Like I, I'm standing in front of a work here, which is which is three times the size I thought it was when I saw it online. 
Um, even though probably I had the measurements there, I just felt the brush strokes and, and, the, and the way it was drawn. Um, this was like a pencil, but now I realize it's like a charcoal. So it's a much wider um, script. And, and so basically you start seeing the physicality of the person painting it, of the, of the way it's being painted. And suddenly it takes on a new impression when it's a picture of a face, like which is done, which is, which is four times the size of our own face. Suddenly it's a much different kind of story. It's a different kind of painting, a different kind of picture. And uh, in the window, we have a really amazing painting, which seen for the first time, and I didn't realize it had this frame on it. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful painting of an NHS nurse, and it's really uh, incredibly well rendered. And then it's in a slightly classical frame as well, which I never would have expected. And it makes it very neoclassical. It gives it this strange like place on uh, on these old masters paintings in Mayfair in Bond Street and and Davis Street here and and so suddenly like it, it you know but it's a contemporary subject it's it's something that we've that we you know so there's a sort of celebration of the moment here as well which i think is really apt and really important and really crucial for for what's going on here when you were selecting the work were you did you know what you were looking for, or were we just getting through open to everything? Or you talked about a narrative. Is there some story that was linking your selection together? Was it a curatorial selection or talent? Or tell us about the selection process. I know I love that you mentioned things are different online than they are in real, and that's part of the joy of getting out of lockdown. It's a lot, a lot in one question. I think when you're selecting for something like this, you do find yourself thinking about the theme, if there's a theme. And the theme, obviously, is this idea of painting a portrait of this current moment in time. So it's a, it's a moment in time. So it's a, in theory, when we're selecting, we, we've got this as a sort of overarching idea. The idea of uh, COVID, uh, lockdown, um, in... And it was actually, I think, um, it was all, all up, you know, obviously all up and down the country. So it wasn't, it was, it was a very broad, it was a very, very broad um, uh, amount of people that submitted stuff. And, and also I think when you're selecting, you, you kind of, you find yourself thinking, oh, well, actually I'm quite surprised by something. I'm quite excited by something. And it may, it may be that it doesn't quite hit the, hit that I you know the 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 lockdown target exactly but it it somehow surprises you it somehow kind of um it amazes you as well so sometimes you're just literally overdone with amazement and uh, and I think that that's I think that's an important thing to just be kind of like well you know it's this is you know we I often get to a point like where the work I'm looking at isn't anything like the work that I make or, or in a way, the work that I follow um, in, my own, in my own life. But, it, but it, I just, I'm able to appreciate that within that genre or within that place or for that, work, for that kind of work, this is a really amazing and a really 
like a really good quality version of that thing. Sorry to be, sorry to undermine it by say version, you know. But but I think you know art is a language, and I think that you know that that there is a sort of syntax that there are kind of bits that go into it. There is a uh, there is a kind of um, there is a something that came before. There is an a priori. There there, there are kind of. And I'm not. I can't call them laws because there are no laws, and we're free to do whatever we want. In fact, we're we're free to br break out, but we have to break out from something. And so it's that something, um, almost like the pre preconceptions and preconditions that um, that that kind of give us a sense of like how we measure it. And and it's a very difficult thing. I mean, I I kind of I really. I found it a great honor and I really was excited about judging this competition but also like I I kind of shy away and I hate the idea of judging anything as if you can put some sort of um, sort of hierarchy a sort of like a, a meritocracy kind of schema onto artworks as if one artwork might be better than another when obviously a lot of the a lot of the way that we look at art is actually in context or if we see it in context we can say Wow, this thing here, which we're looking at, has has revealed and done so much, and made made somehow made a difference in a way that maybe something else, which looked uh, absolutely perfect to to from the outside, suddenly when we look at it, it hasn't actually really had so much effect. So it's really about the context, and we know art's about the context. Is art about transcendence? Is art about transcendence? I, I don't really know what transcendence is, but, but it, if I understand what it is, I would say that, that there, there does come a point when I'm thinking or looking at art or even talking about my own art where I get this kind of inability to talk about it. And it gets to this kind of wonderful kind of like, oh, just because I like it <laughs> kind of justification. And, and I think that maybe this is, this is sort of transcendence, this, this unspeakable thing where something just goes above a, a point where you're able to kind of rationalize it. It just, it just um, kind of it just hits you somehow sort of in your, in your being, in your makeup. And it, and it registers something about the vitality and the moment of, of now. Will you take us to the next picture? And while you're going, will you tell me how you got into the art world and how the art world's changed as we walk over to the next picture since you started? No okay. Pressure. Well, I mean, I got into the art world kind of accidentally if it's possible to get into something accidentally because I because I didn't really as well I just literally went from school to to doing a f art foundation to doing a degree and then to doing an MA and and then kind of and then came out and started working with galleries and was in the art world and was an artist by by virtue of not doing anything else and so it, it kind of I mean I suppose it was almost like I was just abandoned by everything else I mean I I must say that that I can't think of any you know if I could think of a better job 
I probably would go and do it, but I can't think of a better job because, because as, as, as quickly as I can think of something better to do, I realise I can do that in my art. <laughs> so my art gives me a massive opportunity to kind of almost like get distracted by my own attention, by my own um, enjoyment in things. So there's this kind of... Um, I kind of, this is the thing, I kind of lucked into it. And, and obviously, um, like when, when I, I mean, I think I was the last year when we were still getting a, a grant and it, was, and it was possible for really anyone to go to, to, to do extended studying. And, um, and I think I went to Chelsea and then I went to the Royal College of Art. Um, yeah. What painting are you taking us to now? Sculpture so, painting. Well, yes. Yeah. So is this a sculpture? Is it a painting? I think it's a, I think it's a kind of a whole conceptual um, kind of edifice, a conceptual conceit, <laughs> if that's okay. This is actually a work, this is the only work that I knew of before um, this is Joseph, This is an artist, Joseph O'Connor. He's a young artist. Um, basically, the, the, the works were sold, and I think all of them have been sold for the face value on the canvases, and uh, and the money raised went to uh, went to charity. So you know, Joseph's very interested in the idea of um, of. It's almost like blockchain. It's a, it's a, it's a, like a way of funding stuff using things broken down into parts. And uh, and he uses the internet. He uses his channels of, uh, of of the people that he knows and the people that he can contact and get to on the, online. And um, and he builds structures using using art and using sponsorship and and various sort of packages. So it's a it's a you know. So what we've got here, what we're actually looking at, is a series of a, of a hundred red rectangles painted in a kind of Onkawara "I am still alive" um, typeface. Which actually, on each of the canvases, there's a different number, one to a hundred, and the, and the and the uh, the top right hand picture one pound moving along like reading across the top line two pounds three pounds four pounds etc until we go all the way through to the bottom the bottom uh, right hand corner did i say did i say top right hand corner top i'm busy <laughs> my left and right's gone that's what happened uh, the, the top left hand says one pound and the top right hand says a hundred pounds you've been listening to a private view with me Maeve doyle Thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye for now.